Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The big debate in Washington this week is about realism versus idealism. If you've been reading Playbook, and you obviously should be, you probably think I'm talking about how Joe Biden hosted Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi for a state dinner. Biden has made big claims about how democratic ideals are at the heart of American foreign policy, but he spent two days lavishing time and attention on Modi, who is persecuting Muslims and cracking down on public dissent from reporters and political opponents. Biden needs India to be an ally against China, and that priority outweighed the instinct to shun Modi for his creeping authoritarianism. We talk about this debate all the time when it comes to American foreign policy. But sometimes that same debate becomes central to American domestic politics as well. And across town, just as Modi was wrapping up his joint address to Congress, evangelical conservatives from across the country were gathering at the Washington Hilton to hear from their own flawed partner, Donald Trump. Well, actually, not just Trump. Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, and every major Republican candidate is scheduled to speak at the Faith and Freedom Coalition's Road to Majority Conference. But naturally, Trump is what religious conservatives are talking about. After all, he's the dominant frontrunner for the GOP presidential nomination. And he's the group's keynote speaker at their gala dinner on Saturday night. And he's also the politician about whom two things can be said. One, his personal and public life makes a mockery of the Christian ideals of evangelical voters. And two, he's the person who has delivered more policy victories for these same voters than any other president. The questions that evangelicals are debating in Washington this week are whether that deal with Trump was worth it and whether they should renew the contract. Our guest this week has a lot of thoughts about this. He is the founder and chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, Ralph Reed. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. In 1989, fresh off a presidential campaign, Pat Robertson, the late televangelist, recruited Reed to help run a new organization, the Christian Coalition. It grew to be a powerful political group that cemented social conservatives as a core constituency of the Republican Party and made issues such as opposition to abortion rights non-negotiable policies in the GOP. As you'll hear in our conversation, Ralph Reed is a political junkie. He left the Christian Coalition in 1997 and soon became one of the key strategists for George W. Bush. And then in Obama's first term, Reed struck up an unlikely friendship with a guy named Donald Trump. He did for Trump what he does for every presidential candidate who comes calling for his advice. He explained how to win over evangelical voters, who make up about 60% of the Republican presidential primary electorate. 
In his view, it worked out pretty well. Evangelicals overwhelmingly backed the thrice-married New York playboy who famously botched Bible verses on the stump. And Trump kept his word when it came to their most important issue, appointing Supreme Court judges who would overturn Roe v. Wade. So what will evangelicals do in the 2024 Republican presidential primary? That's the question Reed and I discussed in a back room at the Washington Hilton as his conference attendees filed in. Give me your current sort of handicapping of the of the presidential primary, and um, we'll start with that. We'll, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll try to do that quickly. I would say, and it, it's going to be a moving target, but coming into this weekend, yeah, Trump is in as formidable a position as any titular frontrunner for the nomination in my career. I mean, if you look at where he is in the polls. And I worked for Bush and we were about at or a little below, depending upon which poll you select, where he is today. Um, Dole was probably at 50%. Phil Graham was maybe at 15 Um The main challenger to Dole at the time. In 96. Yeah. And, and I could go through each of the cycles, but we don't need to. He's yeah, a yeah. very strong, formidable uh, frontrunner. He's the first former president to seek his party's nomination since Teddy Roosevelt did 110 years ago. This is a big deal. So that's the first fact. The second corollary and somewhat contradictory fact is this is going to be a very competitive process. This is a strong field. DeSantis is arguably the second in terms of poll rating, fundraising the infrastructure he's building, but there are others. And my sense is that if someone else can win in either Iowa or New Hampshire, that this race will change overnight. And I say that as somebody who's been involved in a campaign that changed overnight when we lost New Hampshire to McCain in 2000. I mean, we were leading in South Carolina by 20 points for this New Hampshire primary when Bush landed in Greenville, South Carolina, we were down by two. Yeah. This race will turn on a dime, but someone will probably have to win one of those first two contests. If Trump doesn't lose either of those two, I think it'll be almost impossible to stop him. But I want to be clear about this. In my view, it's going to be highly competitive, very dynamic, and no one should take any vote or any state for granted. At this early point, which is one of the reasons why I think they're all coming here this weekend. Who's got the toughest job this weekend? Who's really coming into the lion's den here? Um, I don't know about toughest job, but I in, think in terms of maybe based, a mismatch between based the- on the poll numbers, probably Christie. Um, and this is let's be honest, this is not a Christie's crowd, right? <laughs> but he was here eight years ago uh, in 2015. They were all here, ironically enough, except Trump. But Christie, I think, will do well. You know, he he did very well eight years ago. He'll make his case. I don't know if he did very well. <laughs> <laughs> no, here at the conference. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. He talked about why he was pro-life, and he talked about why being pro-life meant more than abortion to him. It was also criminal justice reform. It was also choice in education. 
It was also uh, the opioid crisis and so forth. Christie's a very bright, smart, tough, quick guy, you know, and and when he walks out on a stage, you stop talking to the person next to you to listen to what he has to well, say. It's interesting how issue-focused he was the last time. Obviously, yeah. his game right now is to really take it to Trump, so that'll be interesting. Yeah, and if he if he were to do that, and I'm not going to try and tell him what to do, I don't think it would be as well-received as it was. <laughs> You've talked about this many times. I'm sure it's the thing you get asked the most about, the evangelical movement and Republican politics over since he's come on the scene. Um you can anticipate the question, but the, what what is the bond there? What is the what to uh, a move a religious movement that um, why was Trump okay to be your movement's uh, champion? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have my own you know ideas about this. I'm not asking this in a, in a necessarily a critical way, but his the the, the the way it's usually asked is that his personal life did not conform to um, what most preachers uh, preach on, uh, uh, on Sunday. Yeah, and the values we had espoused. Yeah, and look, you, you came up in the '90s. You know, obviously, where Clinton's personal life was right. a huge issue for the Republican Party, and there was a you know, it's not just policy. Character also also matters, and some people argue that he felt you know he would fall short on some of those those, those metrics. So, right. I know you know this line of questioning oh, very, yeah. very well. I'm pretty familiar. Yeah, the, the idea is that there's this massive contradiction. Um, so for this, let's get into that for a second. Just explain what it was that um, made him an acceptable uh, leader for the evangelical movement. You know, I think it's it's a great question because I think, you know, sometimes it's easy to forget when you're living history that you are, in fact, living history. Yeah. yeah. But I think that his nomination in 16 and their belated and reluctant acceptance of him as their standard bearer. Leadership, grassroots, both? Both. Yeah. Uh, I think the leaders were slower to come than the grassroots, to be honest with you. Absolutely. And every constituency in the Mm -hmm. Republican Party. Yeah. I think think that was an inflection point in the history of the evangelical political movement. Yeah. And it's a very significant moment in modern American political history. And I think it, I think it was a teachable moment for the evangelical community and also for those who are their critics or observers or followers of the impact that they've had. And I think it was, it was teachable in this respect. I think that what we did to make an issue out of Clinton's personal conduct in the nineties was a mistake. Hmm. And said it at the time. Um, I was in the minority. Yeah. Uh, but I, I argued against impeachment. I argued that he should be censured. Um, and I, didn't, I didn't remember that. And what, yeah. So what was the, was it? What was well, my, my argument was that, you know, and I, I said it in a number of interviews. I wrote a book in which I talked about it. Um, it was not a majority position in this community. But I said that if we started making our support, first of all, I think- I see. Contingent on- Yeah, the, contingent upon- Personal- Yeah. Um, I mean, personal morality, essentially. Right. That it, that it could get very dicey. Um, that you want to be able to support leaders who have personal flaws if they can advance your political agenda? 
and yeah. that that's more important. And, and I and I think that that I do think character does matter. I do think private character matters. I also think public character matters. Leadership and character are very complex. And because we are sinners and we're all of a fallen nature in my theology, people are complicated. And, you know, there were people who said publicly and said to me, well, if he couldn't keep his uh, wedding vows, he's not going to keep his promise to you. And that was a common thing people would say about Bill right. Clinton, right? Well, what's interesting about that argument, Ryan, and I, were you talking about Clinton there or, or Trump? I mean, Trump. it applies to both of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah Trump. It was said about both. Yeah. <clears throat> but what I said to them at the time was, you may be right, but I've gotten to know this guy and I found him to be a man of his word. Hmm. And the example I gave you of him saying, I gave my commitment, I'm going to come. Here's what's interesting. Fast forward eight years later, after many of those conversations, did he not keep his commitments and promises to this community and or more broadly to the American people on the court appointments, on moving the embassy to Jerusalem, on defending Planned Parenthood, on standing up for religious freedom, on being pro-life? He did. So I would say, without personalizing it, that I was right and they were wrong. In that I said, I know him. I've dealt with him. I've found him to be a man of his word. I'm not defending everything else he's done in his life. Um, and I'll tell you another thing that I think and, is. And, you, and in hindsight, you can make that, that argument because issue wise, it's very, uh, it's very clear on judges and the, the Dobbs decision. Yeah. That that was a good bet at, at, at the time. I, I used to and it was a bet, by the way, we should be clear, that we didn't have much of a choice to make anyway. Right, because exactly. Because on the other side was Hillary, well, and, yeah. and we knew we would get nothing. Also, maybe you didn't have much of a choice because you're, you're at the grassroots. He, like a lot of elites in the Republican Party, he was kind of, I mean, you had a relationship with him. It sounds like he was taking your advice. You could, you could talk to him. I but wouldn't go that far. He was, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the whole phenomenon was that he was – he was bypassing the elites in the party. Yeah. Right. Like which, which you know, he kind the of Paul Ryan's and the, yeah. right. Right. But he, he was going around. I mean, one, of, one of the biggest applause lines at his rallies, and I went to a few of his rallies before he was the nominee, just to kind of see what was going on. Yeah. And I tried to go to events for all the candidates, you know, so I wasn't taking sides, but I remember being struck by, there were two moments at his rallies in 16 when the roof would come off the place. The first was we were going to build the wall and we were going to make Mexico pay for it. And the other one was <clears throat> when I'm president, we're going to say Merry Christmas in America again. What is it with all this happy holiday stuff? It's going to be Merry Christmas. Bang. And I went, wow, you know, he doesn't really need the endorsements of all these preachers, does he? He kind of knows what they want to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. But my point is, is that. And and probably more in a realpolitik way, my approach was maybe different than some because I've been involved in politics by then. That's a really good way to describe long, long this relationship, time. though. The real politique, right. Yeah, I'd been doing this for a long, long time. I'd worked on presidential campaigns at a senior level. And it was like, look, if he's going to be the nominee, we got to figure out a way to work with him. And Paul Weirich, who was one of the organizers of the new right back in the 70s and the 80s, a guy who I learned a lot from, 
most people don't know who Paul was anymore. But, yeah. I, but if you read any history of the conservative <laughs> movement, he's a very important person. He, he was involved in the founding of the Heritage Foundation, founding a moral majority. He told me something one time when I was just a young buck coming up that I never forgot. He said, Ralph, I would rather have somebody who isn't one of us who thinks I elected him than somebody who is one of us who thinks he did it by himself. And the point is this, nothing against the candidates of genuine faith and longtime service in the evangelical or pro-family movement who are great friends, who, who are compelling candidates. But I've worked with a lot of those guys and a lot of, they don't think you did it. They think, well, they voted for me because I was the Sunday school teacher and the, the moral guy, right? right? Trump knew that people in the community had jumped on a grenade for him and had delivered the vote. He didn't believe he had done it on his own. So he felt like he had a debt to repay. And that mattered. And in terms of the criticism that, well, you know, you're just transactional like everybody else. My response to that is, you're darn right we are. You know what it's called? It's called citizenship. Yeah. So we have come into the arena with certain public policy priorities. We would prefer that you're still married to the bride of your youth. <laughs> you go to the same church we do, and you worship the same God we do, and you read the Bible every day. That would be our preference. Yeah. But while we're here on earth, the most important thing is that you agree to support these policies and you will fight for them. And that when you tell us you're going to do it, you keep your word. So what's interesting is, and this is what, to fold it back into this weekend and this conference, Trump, by virtue of being that um, sort of stereotype-shattering figure who kind of broke all the rules, yeah. he raised the bar of expectations for this community that all of well, these because he because he, he he okay because he because he um he delivered well two things number one he made public commitments and pledges that no one had ever made right with no the list, one like the, the judge list in american history no one had ever released a list yeah. and said i choose one of these 21 no one had ever done that. People get really worked up about that. My view is, well, isn't that actually being more transparent? Yeah. Why, does, why, doesn't, why, doesn't, why don't both sides get pressed to do that? Uh, so he made those commitments and he kept them. And there's another thing that happened that is rather ironic the way things have played out and where we are now this weekend. He picked Mike Pence. And I was in Cleveland when that happened. And I am telling you, in the faith community, it was a game changer because they said, first of all, it's the, it's the first and arguably the only presidential level decision that a nominee will make during the campaign. Right. It's the only way. So it gives you can, a signal of, of where he is. On they this. can telegraph and, and show evidence of the kind of leader they're going to be. And it was seen as he's, this is, a, this is some, this is of all the different pieces of the Republican party. He's, his first big decision is something that evangelicals really like. Yes. And, and Mike Pence was somebody, not only that we respected, not only somebody who was a solid pro-life conservative and a man of devout faith himself, 
I mean, I knew him. I had talked to him about running for president. He had spoken at our events. Let's start. Let, let's start with what your organization is doing. While you guys are here, you have all the presidential candidates coming into town this weekend. Yeah. This is coming out on the, the Friday morning before that starts. Um, you're going to have a huge amount of tension because this is in Washington. All the political press corps will be here. Right. Uh, you've got things kicking off with Pence, and then uh, you've got Trump at the at the gala. Rather appropriate that Pence and Trump are the bookends. Yes. So so tell us about tell us about what the the, the um, political and policy uh, point of this whole thing. What is your organization? Yeah, Faith and Freedom Coalition. I founded it in 2009 after we were badly out-hustled by the Obama political operation in the ground game to an extent that uh, that presidential election more closely resembled a Harlem Globetrotters basketball game than a real presidential election. And I had several people come out, uh, approach me, come to me and say, you know, I know you left the Christian coalition, you've gone on and done other things, but we're getting our heads handed to us and you, you gotta, you gotta get back in the game yeah. uh, in terms of mobilizing evangelicals and other voters of faith. So I founded Faith and Freedom Coalition. It's, it's kind of a successor to the Christian coalition, but it's as far removed from that as a Ferrari is from a Model T Ford because in the interim, um, not because of anything that I did, but just because of advances in technology. Uh, we had the emergence of data science and data analytics, which allowed the construction of highly predictive voter databases based on consumer purchasing patterns, based on viewership habits, reading habits, listening habits. So you guys do all that demographic targeting and, stuff and did from the, the art. And did from the beginning. So if you go back to the height of the Christian Coalition 30 years ago, my voter database would have been in the 5 to 8 million range, and today it's 42 million. Is, and that's not because of the growth of the evangelical political movement? It's because of the sophistication or the ability to sort of find people? I think it's both. I think it's the sophistication and advances in data science and how they've been applied to public policy and politics and voter turnout. But I think it's also the maturation and the increasing sophistication of the evangelical political movement. You know, when I turned the lights on at the Christian Coalition 34 years ago, uh, I can't even believe I'm saying that. <laughs> um, 34, well, it doesn't seem that long ago to yeah. me, but... You know, this was still largely a preacher-led movement. And Pat Robertson, who I worked for, who just passed away uh, within the last couple of weeks, he had just run for president as a television broadcaster, a religious broadcaster, and a preacher and evangelist. Yeah. Well, today, you know, you look at our candidates, you fast forward 35 years, and you've got people like Pence and Tim Scott and... Um, you know, so many others that are that have such an authentic faith message and grew up with this movement as sort of normal it, and it, core ex to them. Exactly. They're products of the movement. We're giving our Lifetime Achievement Award to Mike Huckabee, who was one of our early success stories, you know, won that special election for lieutenant governor, then became governor, then ran for president. And again, it's been a long building process. So I think one thing that gets missed in the reporting on this movement is 
the increasing level of sophistication and application of the most advanced forms of political technology, of grassroots mobilization. And basically, we do two things. Number one, we get those people registered, mobilized, and turned out. Yeah. Which, in spite of all the premature obituaries that were shrinking as a size of the population, and you've got this uh, alleged rise of the nuns, the people who N-O-N- Yes, not N-U-N-S. No, right, like uh, going the way of Europe. That have no religious affiliation and so forth and so on. The fact is there are more evangelicals voting and engaged politically today than at any time in the history of our country. When you add in the faithful, frequently mass-attending Roman Catholics, it's between 35 and 40% of the electorate. And whereas 20, 30 years ago, they were voting 72, 75, 78% Republican, today it's hitting mid to high 80s and even in some cases low 90 percentile. So this is still a huge constituency in the electorate. It's the largest, the most vibrant, the most dynamic, and the most energetic. And there is no path to the Republican nomination for president. And I would argue no path to victory in a general election without understanding and mobilizing this constituency. So that's the first thing we do. But pause on that for one second. Yeah, sure. I want to ask you just when you're making that Ferrari to model T analogy, and I know people are very interested in sort of some of the, the, the modern technology. What's like the, what's as someone who's been around a while, what's part of the wizardry of targeting that, you find you know impressive that you can do now that you couldn't do 30 years ago well when you combine you know the the sort of genius of um micro targeting and data analytics the ability to take 147 to 175 different data points on somebody from where they graduated from college or high school to you know, their, their zip code and precinct to whether they're married or not, to whether or not they have children under the 18 present in the home, yeah. where they worship, if they have such an affiliation, what websites they go to, what books they buy. We can't wow. access the titles, but we wow. can access the general categories. So anybody who buys a devotional book or buys a Bible or buys a Christian or conservative author's book, we know that. You can, and that's basically you're buying databases, like consumer yeah, databases. It, it's anonymized. Yeah. So obviously we're not going to get access to the titles. Right, right, right. But, the, you know, the way you boil this down in layman's language is if you subscribe to The New Yorker, you drive a Prius, and you live in a Bohemian Grove zip code yeah. alone, <laughs> I'm probably not texting you. <laughs> but if you're married... And particularly if you're married with children, you go to church, you watch Fox News, you listen to talk radio, and you listen to Christian or faith-based podcasts or watch Christian television, bang, you're mine. And the, you know, the sort of back of the envelope math would be that if you're single and you're a woman, I'm getting 30% of your votes. Um, The minute you're married... It goes to 60%. If you're married with children present in the home, it goes to 70%. And if you're married and you have children present in the home and you have a bona fide faith commitment that is evidenced by certain external behaviors like daily prayer or Bible reading, weekly church attendance, or more frequently, 
it's 80% plus. So a lot of this is behavioral. I, I can't tell whether you're going to heaven or not, but I can pretty much determine how you're going to vote. And so when you combine that with 100,000 churches distributing our voter literature and registering voters to, to vote, it's a formidable machine. Is it, is it, do you, um, does it have a role in the primaries or just in the general? You know, not as much anymore, which is a great irony. Because when I was at the Christian Coalition in the 90s, we did that with regularity. You're going in primaries fighting internal battles. 100%. But that battle is over. You've won those all of We We won that battle. And there aren't, there, there aren't pro-choice, socially moderate candidates in primaries anymore outside, you know, the Northeast or the... Or the or the Pacific Northwest, and and so it, it's not that we would issue it entirely, but it just isn't necessary. So, um, you know, in the case of this weekend, you know, every one of these candidates is pro-life. Some are going to be more pro-life and pro-family than others, but they're all with us on all the core issues, and we just don't have uh, much of a fight internally within the party, which again is a testament to 30 or 40 years of work. Real quickly, to go back to the other yeah, thing. Yeah, I was going to ask you, just yeah, to be follow clear, up on that. We're, yeah. we're not doing this because we're the Republican Party at prayer. We're not doing this to trade one party for another party. We believe very strongly that the public policy that we advocate is based on biblical principles and biblical values, which in our way of thinking is how God ordered the universe. So in other words, we're not trying to impose our religion on anybody else. We think these principles work, they work for everybody, and they advance the common good. Now sometimes this puts us in places that are different than the Republican Party or Trump base. So for example, during the Trump administration and prior to, we lobbied for criminal justice reform that uh, we felt promoted and provided for humane, loving, and compassionate, tough love alternatives to traditional incarceration for nonviolent first-time offenders. We believe that the biblical model of justice is not locking somebody up in prison and giving them no hope for a better future. It's them making restitution to their victim in society and giving him a second chance. And you had some allies on the on the left in that we did, movement. including the ACLU and others. And we had people on the right, like um, Jeff Sessions, who was then in the Senate and was ranking on judiciary. I don't think he was number one ranking, but he was a big player on judiciary. Yeah, we had a lot of people who fought us on that. Um, Trump was a late convert to that. Uh, immigration is another issue where we don't fall exactly where the base does. What's the difference on that? Uh, we believe that the Bible teaches that you should show compassion and love for the alien and the sojourner in your midst. So we believe in a policy of compassion, but also a policy that enforces the rule of law and secures the border. So we're really betwixt and between. We supported the wall. Okay, or a secure border. We support strong interior enforcement and all those things that Trump did. But we also favor things like reforming the asylum system, 
uh, ending the ridiculous country-by-country quota system, which is a legacy of the great society. We have right now waiting in lines that are years long, minor children of legal residents of our country who are not going to be able to join their parents, in some cases until they're adults. We're talking about children that are 8, 9, and 10 years old. It's anti-family. It's not good for the country. These are legal residents. Their children are kind of trying to get in and join them. Their spouse is trying to get in and join them. And because of the country-by-country quotas, they can't get in for years, in some cases decades. So we believe that some people are forced to try and enter the country illegally because the legal system is so broken and so immoral. We're usually identified um, based on the life issue, the religious freedom issue, and our pro-Israel position. But these other things are very important to us. And we form left-right coalitions every day. And I'm not saying this to be critical of this or any other media outlet, but zero coverage because it doesn't match the caricature of who this movement is and it doesn't match the narrative of how divided we are as a country. The truth is we could get a lot of, we've gotten a lot of stuff done on a bipartisan basis. Another one was the child tax credit where we worked very hard uh, to get the Trump administration to make that a priority. We doubled the child tax credit from $1,000 to $2,000. Joe Biden, unfortunately, as with almost everything else he's done, screwed it up by making it kind of a guaranteed income, you know, in one of his spending bills. Uh, But these are some of the things that are important to us. So I just want to make it clear, the only reason why we're here this weekend, the only reason why we, we want these candidates to come and persuade us is so that they can get in there and pass public policy that is based on these biblical values. Tell us about your relationship with the candidates who will be here this weekend. You've known most of them for a long time, I assume. Long time. Let's um, let, let's pick one at random. Let's start with Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> we're sitting here. Obviously, this is audio only, but we're sitting here in the president's hold. Yeah, right. This so is so the president's we're hold. at the Hilton in Wa- the, the Washington Hilton, and this is where he will be, and some of the other candidates will be before they go out right on stage. stage. If people are familiar with the White House Correspondents' Dinner, this is where the president hangs out before he goes on. Um, we somehow just uh, wandered in here while your friends on the on the religious left, I think, are having a conference yes, today. Yes, they are <laughs> out front. So if we get kicked out, that's probably why. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Take us through some of the, the prominent members, prominent presidential candidates who are going to be here and um, your relationship with them, what you what you know about them that other people don't. Let, let's, let, let's start with Trump, because that's obviously the one you get asked about the most. Right. That's the one where your movement has been criticized the most about right. this relationship. How can you support him? <clears throat> you know, when he does, you know, you, you know, you know that litany. I'm not going to repeat it right sure. now. Let, let, let's start with that. When did you first meet him? 
Uh, I met him in 2010, and then uh, I got a call from him in March of 2011 because David Brody with Christian Broadcasting News had written a story about him exploring running for president. He was interviewing people reportedly and rumored to be hiring some people in early primary states. So Brody called me up and said, what do you think? And I had coincidentally seen Trump that morning at 5 a.m. I had a very early flight. I was on a treadmill at a Washington hotel, and I saw him on the rebroadcast of The O'Reilly Factor. And O'Reilly asked him about abortion. He asked him an abortion question. And Trump answered and said, look, I'm pro-life. And O'Reilly goes... (laughs) As only O'Reilly could. Okay, got it. Abortion banned. (laughs) And Trump goes, no, no, I'm not going to be able to ban it. He goes, but I will tell you this. If I become president, I'm going to do everything I can to save every unborn child I can. And that'll take different forms, but that's what I'm going to do. And I thought to myself, that's a more politically, uh, politically smoother uh, answer than, um, you know, I normally see him give on that question. But yeah, and I was pretty, I found it pretty, pretty, you you were surprised. I was surprised and startled. This New York playboy who had this certain reputation and it was not about being a member of the Christian right. (laughs) Right. And it was one of the better answers I'd ever heard a presidential candidate give. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I didn't have a high opinion of him at the time. And I thought to myself, hmm, I'm going to have to keep an eye on this guy. Later that day, either a total coincidence or a divine appointment, Brody calls me. So I said, what the heck? I'll say it on the record. Yeah. So I told him, I said, look, if he runs with his celebrity name ID and he's pro-life, he's going to surprise a lot of people. And he may do very well. So Brody posts this thing. Well, unbeknownst to me, Donald Trump is sitting in Trump Tower and got Google alerts whenever his name was shocking mentioned in an article. <laughs> so I have now flown down to Florida on business and I'm, you know, on my way to a meeting and the cell phone goes off and it was a blocked number, which I normally didn't, you know, wouldn't answer because it unfortunately might be a reporter. <laughs> <laughs> but I answered it and it was Donald Trump and he said, um, He said, Ralph, I just wanted to call you and thank you for what you said about me. And I said, well, thank you for what you said. You know, it was good. And if you keep saying it, I said, look, if you're serious about this. And he said, let me stop you right there. He said, I'm dead serious. He said, I'm going to run. I said, well, if you need if you're going to run, you need to get to know the evangelicals. And he said, I want to. And I said, well, I'll help you. I said, but you need to come to the Road to Majority Conference. And he said, when is it? And I told him, because it was, you know, coming up in a few months. I told him. He said, what would be the best day for me to be there? And I told him the date. And he said, what would be the best time that day to be there? And I told him. And he said, I just wrote it down on my calendar. I'll be there. I'll have my people call and we'll set it up. (laughs) That was it. That was it. And I hung up the phone and I went, This is one of the richest guys in America. He's one of the most famous people in the world. And I just, without talking to a strap hanger, an advisor, a scheduler, an assistant, nobody, 
He just booked, booked himself, himself at my conference. <laughs> did he come to the conference? Yes, he did. Okay, but it happened. In, in, okay. the, in the interim, yeah. in the interim, he was in this hotel. That's why I started with the fact and that we I were was, here. So I he, was at this is 2011, right? May of 2011. White House Correspondents Association dinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I was am a famous the, one. I am the guest of Lally Wymouth, you know, with the Washington, Washington Post. Post. And so is he and Melania. But I was at, uh, I think it was Marcus Brawley's. Um, yeah, uh, what did you say it again? Marcus Broccoli. Marcus Broccoli, I think. That's the wrong. editor. I was at his table. I believe that's it. And I, I think I was sitting next to Karen Tomaldi, but I can't, you know, I may have that wrong. And Trump was one table over. So we had just talked on the phone, you know, and I had seen him at Trump Tower in the interim when I was in New York. And he came over and said hi. Big mob around him, lots of photographers. He sat down, and that was the famous episode where Obama went after him. Yeah, Obama was probably sitting in this room where we're sitting, going over his and, speech. <laughs> and rid- ridiculed him, and everybody roared with laughter. And I was sitting one day over. Everyone's and, looking at him. I mean, it was like a total takedown. Yeah. Very famous. Some people think this is why he ran for president. Yeah, <laughs> that's not the case, by the way, in my view. But in any event, when the, when the dinner was over, he got up from the table. I got up. And before he left, he turned around at me and he said, he mouthed, call me. (laughs) And I went, he's running. So uh, I'll wrap this up, but it's an incredible story. So he said, I'll have a car pick you up, bring you to my hotel, put you up. I want you in my office at 9 a.m. And then we'll go over to the ballroom and announce. And you'll just be standing there. And I'm sitting on the bed, and, and my wife is sitting there listening to this. And I'm looking at her going, can you believe this? <laughs> and so I hung up the phone, and I said, look, at a minimum, I'm going to have a great story. I said, so I'll go. And she said, you should go. So I did. And when I was ushered into his office, and as I walked in the door, I took one look at him. And I knew he wasn't running. He changed his mind in between. He changed his mind. And when I, I, I walked in and I sat down at his desk and I said, you're not running, are you? And he goes, I'm not. And he said, and I owe you an apology. He said, but when I called you, I was running. Yeah. He called me on Friday. Okay. So this is Monday. Yeah. And some of that. What did happen that week? What did happen that weekend? Well, is he, it Melania or he, no? He di- he divulged to me, and I've never told the the full story because it it was some of it was I felt in confidence. But the bottom line was NBC threw an an unbelievable amount of money at him, offered him an unbelievable sum of money to do one more season, and he said, it, "I just couldn't turn it down." So, so the point, the point is we became friends. And so, so when he did run, unlike a lot of other evangelical leaders, I did not have any reservations at all. I, it would take too long to go through all the conversations we had, but I, you would jump in the run up to that. Yeah. I talked to him about the various issues because he was seeking my, you know, input yeah. on if I go, what about this? What about that? What do you think of this guy? What do you think of that guy? Who's a good pollster? Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And and I just, I told him what I would tell any other person. It wasn't customized advice. You are not, you cannot win this nomination. If you don't win two of the first three toll booths, and those are Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, 
60% of the caucus attenders minimum in Iowa will be self-identified evangelicals. Today, it's 65%. 60% of the vote in South Carolina will be born-again Christian evangelicals. There's no way to this nomination if you don't overperform among these people. And you got to give the guy credit. But he was a very quick study. He got it. He got it immediately, and he did it. But were they, this is so, like you said, this is the advice that you give to any presidential candidate who calls you and say, "Hey, what do I need to know?" Yeah, but most of what? them don't do it. <laughs> what, yeah, don't I'm do not what? Kidding. They don't do what? They don't follow the advice. Break it. Break that down for us. What is the advice? I'm coming to you. I'm, I'm, I want to run for president, and I've got no experience like, like someone like Trump. Really. Um, where do you start with a person like that, with a candidate like that? Because this is this probably happens every cycle, right? You have mm-hmm. these conversations. With yeah, candidates. absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so, what's your job there? Is it to explain to them the electorate? Is it to lobby them on the uh, to say, "I want you to, to take these positions on the issues"? That's the only way to, to, to uh, solidify this support. What do you What do you do in those conversations? Because you've had many of them over the years. By yeah. this point, <clears throat> I mean, look. First of all, I'm a big believer that. Everything in life, including politics, is about relationships. It's all about relationships. So my first advice is you got to get to know these people. You got to get to know them on a leadership level. You know, I worked for George W. Bush for basically eight or nine years of my life as part of his political team. And the thing that was so special about him was he knew who all these people were. He knew all the leaders. He knew the megachurch pastors. He knew the, the, the television ministers. I mean, he knew them. Both because of his life spent around politics, but also as a governor. And, <clears throat> just- and because he had come to Christ himself, and he was the governor of Texas. So a lot of those big names were Texas names. Joel Osteen in Houston. Yeah, yeah. Ed Young in Houston, pastor of Second Baptist. Uh, John Hagee, you know, the Christian Zionist leader, you know. San Antonio. I mean, I could go on, but the point makes itself. He knew that community. He knew it because he was in it. He knew it because he had worked for his dad and helped his dad. And he solidified his support in that community <clears throat> He did. very early in that primary. For by this time, it won't even... And he helped solidify it for his dad in 88. When, yeah, because his dad was a little shakier. <clears throat> that, in fact, was how I got to know George W. So that's my first advice. You have to get to know the people yeah. and you have to get to know the leaders. And listen to them and get to know them and, you know, get their cell phone numbers and stay in touch with them. And when you move around in these primary states, do the same thing there. Do a roundtable meeting, close press, just you and them, not a bunch of staff, you know, for an hour to 90 minutes and let them talk. Let them share with you. Let them pray with you. And then when it comes to grassroots strategy... Uh, you cannot treat them as the redheaded stepchild that is tolerated, but not put at the center of your strategy. They have to be not just a coalition group. They have to be at the center of your political strategy for how you're going to hit your vote goals, how you're going to turn the vote out, how you're going to get endorsements, all those other things, all the things that you do to win a state's primary. These people have to be at the center of it because they're not... They're not minor players anymore in the Republican Party. They are the Republican Party. They are the Republican Party leadership in a lot of these states, you know. And uh, and then on the issues, I I what I tell them is just be authentic, be yourself. Don't pretend you're Bible a biblical scholar, right? 
if you if if it doesn't you know trip off your tongue and it's not a memory verse for you in real life you don't need to do it mike pence coming in and doing that that's 100 percent authentic um what trump did the first time he came to this conference which was in 2011 candidly it was one of the things that impressed me he was now not running so he still came yeah, and when yeah. I met with him yeah. in Trump Tower on that Monday, I said, hey, listen, I just want you to know, if you don't come, because you're not running now, you're not going to offend me at all. But I want you to know the invitation still stands, because I know you're interested and you may do this later. So better to get to know these people now. Yeah. And he said, I made a commitment. I told you I was coming. I'm going to be there. And I remember walking out of there and being impressed by that. But that's my advice. You know, get to know them. Don't try to be something you're not. Don't feel like you have to be forced way out on the right on an issue in order to be accepted. So you want to be able to demonstrate that you share their views on the issues and you share their values. But you you don't have to overdo it uh, because they understand that you're Electability. Running- the electability thing matters to them. That's yeah. interesting. And so you, you say that up front. I say that up front. And and uh, I have to say, um, Trump impressed me, particularly with the release of the list of jurists that he was going to choose from yeah. uh, to be on the Supreme Court. And uh, so anyway, that's, that's the answer on Trump. Thank you for doing this. Good luck in the conference. We'll be here all weekend checking out the candidates. And I uh, appreciate your time. You bet. Good to be with you. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Thanks to David Toledo for the editing help this week. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>